With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. Your fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Cass, last season we did a two-part episode with Sarah Scaturro, who is the head of the conservation department for the Costume Institute at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And she chatted with us about the field of conservation, uh, fashion conservation in particular, as well as the exhibition that was then currently on view, Heavenly Bodies, Fashion and the Catholic Imagination. Yes, and that was such an incredible exhibition and interview. And when we recorded that episode with Sarah, we actually did not know yet that the exhibition was about to shatter not only the record for attendance for a show at the Costume Institute, but also it was to become the most attended exhibit in the 146-year history of the Met. Whoa. Yeah. So more than 1.6 million people attended Heavenly Bodies, shattering the previous record for a single show, which actually dated all the way back to 1978's mega blockbuster, Treasures of Tutankhamun. Okay, just a side note here. Um, I'm going to date myself with my age <laughs> when I say that my parents actually went and saw this show and they left me behind as a small child <laughs> because they thought I was too young and I'm still angry about it. Like, yeah, who, I mean. <laughs> who remembers that being two and a half? You clearly knew the value at two such and a half age. year old har- harbors a grudge. Um, but but really, the fact that Heavenly Bodies is now the most attended show in the history of the Met really proves that fashion history is a point of fascination for not only you and I, cast, but also increasingly millions of people around the world. And in the context of that particular exhibition, it also proves that people are very interested in the intersection of dress and religion. Whether you're Catholic or not, throughout history, dress has been a critical signifier of one's system of beliefs. Indeed, it really has, especially if you think back to the very origins of our country. So many of the early colonists of the Americas were Puritans. And they fled to our shores in the face of religious persecution. And part and parcel to the puritanical system of beliefs was this general mandate of asceticism. So severe avoidance of all forms of indulgence. And in the context of their clothing, this really meant a extreme plainness in dress. Yeah, really meaning nothing extra. Like no embellishments, no finery like lace or excessive embroidery, you know, Wearing anything to the Puritans that was considered trendy or fashionable was really considered a physical manifestation of vanity and moral turpitude. So, considering that transgressions of Puritan moral codes included being sentenced to time in the stocks, public lashings, being branded on the hand or face, and even the severing of bodily parts, well, you can just kind of sum it up and say that fashion proper didn't have any place in these early colonies. Uh, No. (laughs) (laughs) But it does underscore the fact that the relationship between religion and dress has a history of some 400 years in the Americas. And today we wander into a bit of uncharted territory in the field of fashion history, and I'm very excited for this. We are going to be talking about the history of dress in fringe religious movements in the United States. Yes. Today we are joined by fashion historian, educator, and archivist Sarah Bird to talk about cult style. Welcome, Sarah. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sarah. Oh, thanks so much. I am beyond excited to be a guest on Dressed. 
and <laughs> to be talking to you about this subject, which um, I find to be challenging and interesting and I'm finally ready to start sharing it with the world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, before we delve into things today, I'd like to ask you how you came to study this topic, because as you mentioned, you're ready to share it with the world. And it's admittedly a bit unusual topic. It's true. Uh, it does garner a lot of attention when I mention it to people. Um, it really started when I spent a couple months in Los Angeles several years back and was out there sort of recovering from some big life changes and started to wonder why it was that Los Angeles was this center for spiritualism, especially kind of thinking about cults and communes and utopians and everything that was going on in the 60s and 70s. So that really kickstarted my investigations into what was going on in Los Angeles, which led me to think more broadly about where does this come from in the United States? Mm -hmm. And finally kind of looking to upstate New York in the 19th century as the starting point for my research. Right. Well, um, when I heard that you were working on this, I became very excited um, because I realized that despite the fact that you and I have been friends for years, and we actually work together quite closely, I mean, we see each other at least once a week. <laughs> it's true. At least. <laughs> um, but um, I don't think it had ever come up in our conversations that I was actually born and raised in a cult, and my father was one of the leaders. I tried to leave when I was 16, but as being a minor, that was a no-go. Um, there was little I could do about it at that time. And you better bet that I left as soon as I turned 18. <laughs> um, and I'm sure that we will talk a little bit more about my experiences when we get to the end of the episode, um, because there's a little bit of an interesting tie-in to one of the four specific groups that we're going to talk about today. So perhaps first we should address this word cult, because this word technically has a couple of different meanings. And I think we should go with our trusty friend, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary here. One of their definitions of a cult is, quote, a great devotion to a person, idea, object, movement, or work, such as a film or book. But that's probably not the definition that comes to mind first for most of our listeners, I would guess. Um, it would be the other definition in Merriam-Webster, which is, quote, a religion regarded as unorthodox or spurious. And, of course, spurious meaning um, a deceitful nature or quality. So in this word cult, there are negative connotations that are embedded in this word already, inherently. And some sociologists and anthropologists have actually tried to remove this implication of judgment when referring to these groups and use alternate terminology. Sarah, can you tell us a little more about this? I can tell you what I've thought about in the beginnings of my research, because of course, for anyone who knows me, they know how much I love thinking about words and language and what we actually say when we use certain words. So as a scholar, you know, we think a lot about what kind of judgment we're putting on things with the word choices. So when I started, cult was the thing that I used because it was the thing that I knew. But it also grabs people's attention of course, right away. <laughs> there's a little bit of publicity in every good bit of work. But I do take that stance of kind of striving to remove my judgment from these communities. So I've looked to a couple of different resources for this, and um, they tend to also fall into the sociologist definition that removes this judgment 
So there's a term called new religious movements Mm -hmm. um, that some people have suggested would be a good solution instead of cults and sects and all of the other characteristics. And and you mean um, sect, like S-E-C-T, not S-E-X. Correct. Which we're also going to talk about (laughs) quite a a bit in this episode. (laughs) Um, But in my case, I've adopted a term called alternative communities. Yeah. It's a little more inclusive and encompasses all of the different types of things that could fall into that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's I think it's really important to think about terminology here because I guarantee you that anyone who voluntarily enters one of these groups don't believe at the time um, that they're members of a cult per se. Um, only perhaps when they become disillusioned might this term then enter their vernacular. And, you know, until then, it's really just their system of beliefs. And alternately, sometimes the progress of time reshapes how we view these alternate religions or alternative religions. In a past period of time, a group may have been viewed as a cult, but gradually their beliefs and practices become accepted as mainstream, a mainstream denomination, religious denomination. You know, one example of this that immediately comes to my mind dates back to the 19th century. And I think that it may just surprise people to learn that there's quite a long history of these alternative religions here in the United States. Um, and, and I do want to point out that we are focusing solely on the U.S. today, because otherwise this episode might never end. <laughs> um, so let's talk about Oneida. Can you tell us a little bit about how this community began in their belief system? So this is one of my favorite communities to research. The more I dig deeper into the topic, the more interesting it becomes. So a kind of quick timeline with Oneida, a gentleman by the name of John Humphrey Noyes is the founder of this group. Um, Around 1834 is when he starts preaching this idea of perfectionism, which I'll give a little bit more information about in a moment. Cool. Slowly starting to build up groups of followers into the 1840s. And by 1846, they start their first communal living situation. Um, several offshoots happen around the same time. And in 1848, they established themselves in Oneida in New York state. So at their peak, they have about 306 members in 1878 or so, but that's around the time that it also starts to break up. So by 1881, they have disbanded the communal living experiment and established the joint stock company called the Oneida Community Limited, which you may know from flatware and silverware, (laughs) which is how the assets from the community kind of got divided up amongst the members. So what do they believe in? Perfectionism, which is a term that I think we all hear quite a bit in our daily lives Mm -hmm. um, and could easily be a religion in and of itself, (laughs) Um, separate from this particular belief, um, really The root of it is that the gospel provides for complete salvation from sin, and salvation from sin is the key to all reforms. So essentially, at the core of it is that you have the ability to be perfect through your kind of relationship with God. Correct. Right. Um, Interestingly, uh, Noyes also felt that the second coming had already come and went. Oh, wow. I did Uh, not know that. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I'm forgetting the exact date, but... This is a really handy pro tip if you're going to be a leader of a community and talk about salvation. 
acknowledging that this maybe happened in a way that wasn't recognized as widely or as publicly, but is maybe something that happens more internally within a group of community believers, mm-hmm. um, makes for an interesting way to move forward. They had quite a few interesting beliefs as well about community criticisms, kind of like thinking about it like an art or design critique where you go oh, huh. and you would sit Uh, Especially if you were having some kind of problematic behavior or expression of ego, because one of the big parts of this community is you sublimate yourself to the wider community. Right. For the group good. Absolutely. We, We is the collective. So you would subject yourself to this criticism. Community members would sit around. You would silently receive the comments. It would be spoken very plainly and directly. There's a lot of records of this and the information that's shared. And my favorite part is that they also consumed a pretty plant-based diet. Um, Not so much meat, so heavy on the fruits and vegetables. So there's a lot of other not-so-great things that come about with this group, too. Yeah, yeah. And I think we're going to get to that in a minute. Um, I think Noyes is a really interesting character because, in many regards, he institutionalized the equal rights of women within the group. And these ideologies play out in dress of the female members of the Oneida community. What did Noyes proclaim? And can you describe the dress of the Oneida women? The shortest answer possible to that is that the women, um, meaning not the young girl children in the community, wore a shorter dress with pants. Mm -hmm. Some people might call this a bloomer costume. Absolutely. And if it sounds, that sounds familiar to you, um, we, Cassidy and I actually already talked about this on another podcast, Stuff Mom Never Told You. And we also dropped this into our feed last season. So if you want to learn more specifically about bloomer costume, go back and check that out. And um, we speak about the early dress reforms um, movement of the early American feminists. So they're called bloomer costumes because um, feminists like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Amelia Bloomer, who advocated for dress reform in the 1850s, they adopted a very similar style to these Oneida women, right? So it's a shorter dress and pants that are worn underneath. And there's the Oneida women's were more like pants, pants proper, trousers. Trousers. Right, right. Whereas the Bloomer costume were, were slightly poofier, more like pantaloons underneath. So Amelia Bloomer promoted this style of dress in the pages of her feminist newspaper, The Lily. And then henceforth, that's how it became known as Bloomer costume. But their inspiration may very well have come from the Oneida community, which had actually formed only a few years earlier. What, what do we know about these, um, you know, quote-unquote bloomer costumes that they were wearing? Which they didn't call bloomer costumes, obviously, but it's a shortened dress paired with pants. Well, we do know from some kind of primary source accounts um, talking about the women's styles from the people who would visit the community and discussing how they wore these shorter skirts and pants underneath and how obviously it was very functional. They could move around. They could do their work. But the accounts also mention how plain they were. Mm. So without any extra trimmings and compared them to mainstream fashion with, uh, at this point in time in the 1850s, 60s, you have a lot more flounces and trimmings and bits and bobs that go into the decoration. 
And this is a theme we'll see in other later groups as well, is less of the frills and laces and more focus on simplicity and functionality of dress. Right. And also there's actually a, a longer history of that within American dress at the very roots of the foundation of our nation. Absolutely. And kind of to that Puritan mindset. Absolutely. The community in Oneida also made a change to their policy because they did use communal funds to purchase the clothing needs for the community. But there was a certain point in time where they shifted the practice so that women would have the control over the money to buy the clothing, submitting their things. And then they'd also have a little incidentals committee. So <sighs> if you wanted a new watch or if you wanted a little pen for your dress, which was about the extent of the decorations, you would apply to the committee for incidentals to get permission for this. Wow. There was also a watch committee for men. <laughs> I love this. So the Oneida community really, in a surface reading, seems like it's a progressive, feminist, uh, ideal society. Yes. But the sad truth is that's not true. While there are a number of interesting progressive ideas that are put forth in the Oneida. It's not really that women are equal with men, even though in some of Noyes' own writings, because Oneida also did a lot of publications, they had a weekly journal that they put out, or semi-weekly or semi-monthly, depending upon when it was out. Yeah, there's a ton. If you're interested in Oneida, there's a ton of primary source stuff out there that you can get your hands on pretty easily. Absolutely. It's all great. So even though... There's a whole thing about complex marriage, which I think we'll talk about in a moment. Mm -hmm. um, but at the end of the day, men were still superior to women. Right, right. And 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 we can't avoid talking about the sexual practices of this group. Um, and in fact, all the groups that we're going to discuss today. And you and I both kind of remarked when we started talking about and planning out this episode, how sexual relations are actually central to the belief systems of all the groups that we're going to talk about today. Can you tell us about the sexual practices in the Oneida community? You you mentioned that term complex marriage. What what were they doing? So I'm going to refer to a source that was written. Um, I believe this one is from 1870. And it's about the communistic societies of the United States. And it says, complex marriage means in their practice that within the limits of the community membership, any man and woman may do freely cohabit, having first gained each other's consent, not by private conversation or courtship, but through the intervention of some third person or persons, that they strongly discourage as an evidence of sinful selfishness, what they call exclusive and idolatrous attachment of two persons for each other, and aim to break them up by criticism. So essentially, this idea is... Love between two people exclusively is really selfish for the community. Mm, so interesting. It's when you read other kind of descriptions, especially things by Noyes himself, talking about this idea and even later publications within Oneida about this idea of free love, which mm -hmm. to us has a very different connotation than what it was to them. Interesting. Um, also, to this this um, kind of feminist initial read on this community plays out in the fact that um, 
during actual coitus, the Oneida males were told by noise to practice what they called male continence, and that was to withhold ejaculation. Sarah, why were they practicing male continence? So at the root of it really is about finances and community expenses. So if one of the things that Oneida and Noise were really interested in was kind of labor that's not drudgery mm-hmm. and enjoyment of work, and one of the reasons why you need to think about that in this consideration is that children are expensive. They are a drain on the woman when she's pregnant and unable to work and of course, during the child rearing as well. Um, also, more expense for the kind of financial side of things too. You have to have more food and resources to support this. So it's really about trying to limit the number of children. And I believe that this is also rooted in Noise's experience with his first wife, who died in childbirth. Mm. So a personal kind of rationale for that, but works within the community to spread this idea of less is more. Right. And one of the points of this being to give women some control over their own reproduction, which on the initial read is is quite progressive at the time, but but things go a little bit more awry. You know, this this concept of complex marriage might sound like a swinger's paradise, <laughs> but in the fashion of two of the other groups that we're going to talk about a little later, this also had its dark side. Um, and, it, and it's very upsetting to learn about how the matter of female virginity was handled within the group. It was Noise himself who initiated the young girls of the community into their first sexual experiences. And he did this shortly after they began menstruating. And, and usually this was around the age of 13. But he did engage in sexual relations with some girls as young as 10. And it's fascinating kind of thinking along those lines, too, because— Although you mentioned Noise's initiation into sexuality for the community for the young girls, young men would also be partnered with older postmenopausal women for their training and their entry into sexual practices um, because there's less risk of pregnancy, extra expenses, <laughs> aka children. And this got him in some hot water, as one can imagine. And at one point, he fled to Canada for a period of fearing legal prosecution, something which he had in common with the next group that we're going to talk about, the FLDS. But first, a sponsor break. Welcome back. I would venture a guess that most of our listeners have heard of the next community we will discuss, the FLDS, because they have been all over the news for many years now. And the women of the group are really instantly recognizable by their distinctive dress and hairstyles. Sarah, what can you tell us about the early history of this group? So I can really speak to um, a certain fashion history of it. um, Because my focus does tend to look primarily at the clothing, but You can't just look at clothes in a vacuum and take a superficial reading of them. It's important to look a little bit into specifics. So what I focused on in my timeline research was really how there starts to be a division because the fundamentalist Latter-day Saints are not the same thing as Mormons or the Latter-day Saints. So I think this is a really important thing to acknowledge when we're talking about any kind of 
group is who they are and who they aren't. So beginning um, at the end of the 19th century, there is a shift in the Mormon church in the Latter-day Saints where polygamy is no longer official practice and doctrine. So in 1890, it's kind of the end of that. And this is when we start to see a shift with various sects, with the T, um, <laughs> coming up and moving into more isolated areas in the West. Um, and one community that I looked into in a little bit more detail was in Short Creek, which is on the border of Utah and Arizona, which mm -hmm. conveniently located to avoid certain legal prohibitions. Which, which vary from state to state. Absolutely. So when I went back into the research, I started looking at materials in historic collections and photographs of people in these communities. What Was there any kind of like dressing outside of the norm that began at an earlier phase, kind of thinking about the Oneida and how they wore this more progressive style? But the women in the photographs and the dresses and collections that were donated by Mormons were completely fashionable. Um, so there wasn't any distinction. So when I looked at this infamous raid on the Short Creek community in 1953, mm -hmm. which was another important moment in my research because reporters were invited to this raid that happened. It was documented by Life magazine. There was a big write-up and photo story about it. So we start to see here that the people in the community, which had been a polygamous group, their styles aren't really outside of the norm too much either. So the women are wearing kind of these calicos and floral print dresses, not unlike what you would see in wartime fashions. So even though it's 1953, looking back to other primary sources, like even my own family photographs from rural Tennessee on farms, the styles are pretty much similar. Yeah, so they're just dressed in mainstream fashion. Exactly. So it's not until we get a little bit fast forward into the future, looking at 1970s and 80s, when there's such wonderful, vivid colors that are coming into it. But you also have in that moment where fashion is having that post-countercultural influence of the so-called kind of hippie style, uh -huh. looking at older vintage styles and this Laura Ashley, Gunny Sachs, uh -huh. rise of the prairie dress revival. Uh -huh. Like boho chic. <laughs> yes, totally. <laughs> um, so those styles are adopted by the FLDS community. And it makes sense because they are a little bit more modest mm -hmm. in style, um, but they're still quite fashionable in the 80s. Yeah. I definitely, as a younger person, have... As did I. <laughs> a few gunny sacks dresses. It was, it was mainstream fashion. Yeah. So it's really when we start to shift into the 1990s, where the story changes. And the focus shifts from leadership within the FLDS. And I think that's a big part of where this change begins to. Yeah, absolutely. And as Sarah said before, I just want to stress that the FLDS is a fundamentalist sect of Mormonism, not mainstream Mormonism by any means. Um, and one way they set themselves apart from mainstream Mormonism, beginning in the 90s, is by dress. Um, the female members from that point forward, increasingly as time progresses, are required to adhere to very strict dress codes. And will you describe these types of dresses um, that FLDS women are wearing now 
and perhaps how and why this silhouette seems to have been chosen? Sure. So the things that I've garnered from research and kind of constant observation of image and visual culture is that, so this style is kind of coming out of that 1980s references to the prairie look, but it becomes more simplified. So again, like with uh, the Oneida, where I mentioned there was fewer frills and flounces and laces, the same shift starts to happen in FLDS. So one former member said that the plain prairie style emerged out of this, but without all of those extra frills, it allowed her to help focus on doing things for others rather than seeing how darling she could look. Wow. So there is that kind of like awareness of removing yourself and your ego from the practice of dressing. Mm -hmm. And I think it also speaks to this whole ongoing conversation in fashion about how women engaging in fashion is kind of seen as flippant and self-centered and distracting. Yeah, which, which is a dialogue as old as time, as you know, if you listen to the show frequently. Um, will, you, will you describe the silhouette or the, the appearance of the dresses? And we will post pictures of them on, on our Instagram to illustrate all of these styles of dress that we're talking about amongst these groups. Of course. So they tend to be um, high-necked, mm -hmm. so you're not going to see very much beyond your neck. Um, they do have collars or collarless. They're not form-fitting to the body. Occasionally, it's like a shirtwaist style, so it'll have a half-button-up bodice, long sleeves, a full skirt that goes down to the ankle, often in solid colors. Mm -hmm. um, the most famous imagery is about this kind of, like, rainbow of pastels. Mm -hmm. So you're seeing, like, pale blue, pale yellow, pale lilac, pale pink. Exactly. It's an Easter egg palette. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And those distinctive sleeves, what about those? Uh, well, I think they're quite functional. If you think about um, a community being either in Arizona, Utah, or Texas, where the group had uh, another compound, it makes sense to cover up. Mm -hmm. um, and it also references that prairie kind of... Yeah, the sleeves are kind of... They have a, they have a poof. A, a princess sleeve. Princess poof sleeve. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, which also relates to kind of the poof in their hairstyles too. Yeah, can we talk about that? They they dress their hair in a very specific fashion. What can you tell us about these hairstyles? So the hairstyle is. I read a description of it once that said they are they're often in braids, like a French braid that is at the same time incredibly tight, but also looks like it's just about to completely fall apart. Oh wow! And there is a big um, bouffant poof or swoop at the top of the crown. So it's a very distinctive feature. And for anyone who's seen the television show, The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, you might be familiar with some stereotypes of this style. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of your work, actually, you you talk about in some of your other work, I don't think we're going to delve into it too, too much today, but you talk about a lot about media representations of, of a lot of these groups in film and TV so um, maybe we can touch on that a little bit later. So while the women's dress is dictated in the FLDS, the men in the group wear contemporary menswear styles. And I think that this really underscores the point that within this group, clothing is really being wielded as a form of social control. Can you speak to this concept of individual versus group identity within the FLDS? 
Yes, I think this is an important uh, concept and one that I haven't fully worked out. So I'm always open for more thoughts and feedback on this idea. But essentially, it's this fascinating concept, which you and I have talked about a lot, especially because when, when you study fashion and when you talk about fashion, you talk about identity and what you communicate. So with FLDS, with the leadership of Warren Jeffs, it's when we start to hear about more official proclamations about how you should dress, specifically quotes about how you don't want to dress like anyone from the outside world. So this is the key here. So by adopting this style, which was quite fashionable until, you know, I would say the 90s, um, and in spite of the current revival now, which we will talk about, there is a separation from the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And the men still wear contemporary fashion because they are working outside and engaging in that contemporary world. But what the women do is adopt a more uniform appearance. So aesthetically, they all look alike. And oh, these styles are really like small differences in like subtle details, essentially. Mm-hmm. So they're really communicating their separation from the outside world. It's an us versus them. Right. And within the group, the fact that they are all dressed so similarly, they're within the group, it's almost like they're erasing their individual identities. But when seen from the outside, their clothing is putting a specific identity on them. So I think it's very interesting to see that tension between those two things and how from the inside and the outside, it's functioning completely different in in opposite directions. Absolutely. And it's another important part of that communication. It publicly, even within the community and to the outside world, validates your partnership with this belief system. Right. So you may not have a choice in this. And so there are those moments when um, the beauty of being a researcher in the 21st century is that instead of all of this primary source material being tucked away in archives and other primary kind of sources as researchers, we now have the internet where people are publishing their diaries, especially former members, which information you have to take with a spoonful of salt and recognize that um, experience that they're bringing personally into it, but talking about how the hair and the dress are a form of control. And when you don't conform to the society's expectations, the even the like internal society, not greater United States society, you let your community know when you're struggling. Right. Absolutely. So, of course, the reason that the male members of the FLDS are putting these social controls in place is because they infamously still practice polygamy, which is entirely different, I'd like to point out, than complex marriage as practiced by the Oneida community. So within complex marriage, um, the women had a great deal of agency, but within the FLDS, young girls under the age of consent are routinely assigned to marry men, oftentimes decades older than them, without ever having met them. It's the leadership of the group that is deciding these young women's and young girls' fate. They don't have a choice in the matter. So in regard, it's essential to control even the smallest details of the lives of these female members. You know, the female children are intentionally isolated from the outside world. And I read this one girl's testimony that she was even taught that their leader, the prophet, Warren Jeffs, is the president of the United States. 
Like that's how isolated some of them are. Do you want to speak a little bit more here about Warren Jeffs at all, Sarah? So I think in my research, um, I noticed that this timeline of when the style starts to shift more to that pastel prairie dress style coincides with the time that Warren Jeff starts to take over leadership from his father, whose health was in a period of decline. So with Jeff's rise to power, we see this shift. And one of the things that stood out in this research to me was that when you have this uniformity of appearance and kind of following on this comment about the young women being married, um, when you have this visual palette where everyone looks the same, mm-hmm. one former member said, um, they make us dress all alike and that's frightening because it blurs the boundary of who's an adult and who is a child. Right. So this is where that fashion communication, I think, really stands strong in my understanding right. of this. Right, right. Um, Jeff's, you know, reading the accounts of some people who have left are like heart-wrenching. Um, you know, he he's really responsible for terrorizing thousands of women, including his own daughter, Rachel, who wrote a wonderful book, If You'd Like to Learn More. And she's actually gone public with the fact that her father began sexually abusing her at the age of eight. Um, and this lasted until she was 16. And he would even take her out in public to bookstores and show her pornography. And this is one reason why I, Sarah, kind of find this really hot fashion trend right now, which is sometimes called UPG or UPS, standing for Urban Prairie Girl or Urban Prairie Style. Um, You know, a lot of this is finding inspiration in this FLDS style, and that's one of the reasons why I find it so offensive. So let's talk about UPG or Urban Prairie Girl Style that's happening right now, because it is the hot trend. It is, and It's something that came up when I first started doing this research about three years ago. And pre-New York Times promoting this look, um, I noticed it in reference to the FLDS. So when people talk about the style of dress that they wear, they refer to it as this prairie dress. And being like a super word nerd, I wanted to figure out what do we really mean when we say prairie dress? What are we talking about? And so I go to the dictionary, the fashion Fairchild dictionary. These prairie styles, looking into the dictionaries, weren't giving me any clear definitions. I knew it was probably a reference to the American West. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack when you start plucking references that are very broad and generalized like this. And when you use language that doesn't actually mean anything or means things way bigger than you're aware of. Mm -hmm. So I think this is where design in fashion right now is in a place that it could improve. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, one specific designer who's known for this style is Bathsheba. And um, a while back, she actually posted pictures of preteen FLDS girls in their dresses on her Instagram as a source of inspiration. Um, This was pretty quickly taken down because she got a lot of comments. Um, But, you know, it's just kind of shocking to me that some of these designers that are playing with these references, you know, in the context of the Me Too movement, that that a lot of these designers aren't looking deeper 
than the visual surface, you know, to realize that these styles of clothing for a lot of these women are symbols of pain and subjugation and even kind of the rape of children. Um, So, you know, for me, you know, to be so flippant, to play with irony in this space, I don't find it particularly funny because it's being done with a sort of wink, wink, we know what's going on here. You know, even fans of these styles have been quoted as saying in the press, quote, I have really long hair. And sometimes when I'm on the subway wearing one of these long dresses, I do feel as if people are looking at me saying, blink twice if you need to be rescued from whatever cult you're in. So the people wearing them know too. It's working on both sides. Right. And I think this is, again, that place where we need to do this better job of asking better questions, not only as consumers, because I don't like to put all of the weight on the consumer side of decision-making, but as designers. And in my work as an educator, I work with both fashion design students and historians, and we're always kind of trying to figure out how to do do better. And especially when it comes to source material, when I've worked in archives with fashion designers too, what are you referencing? What is that beautiful image? Because I acknowledge when you look at the photographs of these things, they are incredibly aesthetically appealing. Right. But what are you doing? Do you know where that source image came from? Do you know who that is? Do you know what the cultural context is? And if you're not from that culture, is it really the right choice to make? Right. And and, and that plays into with cultural appropriation as well. So sometimes you have to dig beneath the visuals and and find out what the meaning behind the aesthetics are because that's 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 really what holds the weight here, I think. Absolutely. Okay, so after that somewhat dark segment, um, I'd like to switch our attention to the group that I think you and I are both super excited to talk about, The Source. To quote one former member of the group, quote, if you can imagine going on the highest roller coaster you've ever been on and going fast as humanly possible, that's what life in the family felt like. More on The Source after this sponsor break. Okay. Seriously, Sarah, I'm not joking when I say this is probably the sexiest new religious movement ever. Everyone in the source was drop-dead gorgeous, and their manner of dress has been described as, quote, high hedonic style, (laughs) which I just love. Um, What was the source, and how did the group come into being? So the source was a community that was centered on the spiritual teachings of this quite mesmerizing um, man named Father Yod or Yohua, who was born uh, James Baker, and he was a former Marine and a jiu-jitsu expert mm-hmm. and lived in Hollywood. And he was quite an imposing figure. He was a very large man. Very tall. I think over six feet tall. And uh, he was like six foot four, six foot five, something like this. Very muscular and former bodybuilder. Um, he's really a, a fascinating figure. One contemporary media source described him as a hippie Santa Claus. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, I believe his early kind of teachings are rooted in um, Yogi Bhajan and then kind of take some more, as some former members have said, um, kind of egotistical teaching Mm -hmm. slant. Yeah. There's a lot of like also like 
mysticism, references to Zoroastrianism in his teachings as well. He was kind of blending a lot of different forms of spirituality together, mixing it in one pot and making it his own. I think so. And it seems to me um, he was a bit of a scholar Mm -hmm. in this too. So depending upon where his personal interests in spirituality were taking him, he would do a little bit of research and kind of bring that into the group. And even though they weren't around for a very long time, um, it was really um, a short burst in the beginning of the 1970s. So feels like a long time when you look at the materials for this because there were these various incarnations and phases mm-hmm. of the community. Yeah, and um, I find it really interesting that the, the community itself that formed around him was the result of the fact that he owned several vegan restaurants in Hollywood. So um, people were just sort of mesmerized and drawn to him. And then as people started um, converting to, to veganism, um, this whole just kind of culture, very hip culture um, around these restaurants developed, and that's how the group actually started. Correct. So he had a restaurant called uh, The Source, and obviously this is where the family gets the name from, and I believe it was on the Sunset Strip in yeah. Hollywood. And That's why they're all so damn sexy. <laughs> you, <laughs> you, might, uh, you might be familiar with this from a very brief cameo in Annie Hall, yeah. the movie, mm-hmm. um, where post-breakup scene yeah. happens. Um, but there are numerous accounts in the book by the Source family and the documentary about how people would kind of always be compelled by these beautiful people that were working at the restaurant, men and women. You know, it's young people. It's like in Hollywood. So you can understand there is an emphasis on the physical self and the physical beauty in a place like that still to this day. And the Source restaurant was also a really important part of the family because it provided the finances Mm -hmm. for them. Yeah, absolutely. And like a lot of these groups that were practicing communal living, as the Source did, um, everybody's resources were basically pooled together in one pot. Um, And and a lot of the people actually worked at the Source, um, and, and that was the labor that was, you know, driving the business, and then all their money was pooled together And the source was not the only group of a similar nature to emerge in the 1970s. Um, There was also the Love Israel family, Mm -hmm. um, who they were kind of friendly with each other at certain points in time. There are a lot of similarities also aesthetically between the two. Yeah, absolutely. And there's countless others. What do you think about this exact moment in time? What was it that created this proliferation of interest in alternative religions in the early 1970s? I think it's coming on that kind of countercultural explosion that happened in the 1960s. There's an expanse of thinking in religion and kind of more broad ideas from Eastern religion are coming into these movements. And so I think also an important thing that I've been chewing on with this is why there's an explosion of things at certain times in the United States history. And I kind of see this parallel in the moments leading up to big kind of social conflicts. So thinking about in the 19th century, there's an explosion of these utopian kind of communistic societies in the years right before the Civil War. Right. And in the 1960s, you have Vietnam, you have civil rights. 
You have the women's rights movement. So there's a lot of social upheaval and change that's going on. And in those moments, people really are seeking to Mm -hmm. find some kind of structure that would provide that social support that they're not getting from the larger community in United States society at that time. Yeah. I read a really interesting fact in how immigration reform may have played a role in the fact that increasing numbers of foreign gurus and spiritual leaders were entering the U.S. Um, The reason for this is is, as previous quotas on immigrants from Asia had barred long-term habitation in the U.S. um, by some of these spiritual leaders. But now with the repeal of some of these quotas in the late 60s and early 70s, They were now able to build communities in the United States, and they found many followers willing to hand over all of their financial assets in order to engage in this type of communal living, um, as was the case in the source. Sarah, can you tell us how did the source practice communal living? So this is another one of the sexy, appealing parts of the source story is that They lived communally in a mansion in Los Feliz and... um, A very glamorous mansion, I might add. A lot of the imagery from the group that's available and is incredibly captivating to look at and study shows them at the mother house. And they also had a father house. You know, this is an important part of identity, again, in the conversation is that communal living and kind of using a communal wardrobe as well. Um, So all the clothes belong to everyone within the group. Absolutely. So in an interview with the family's archivist, um, she had mentioned that when I asked if there were any particular rules about dressing, that the family just all kind of dressed like that naturally. So they all had this similarity in appearance. And there's a lot of social theories about why this is. Of course, when you're living in a group setting close enough you all start to conform to this similar idea. You Mm -hmm. don't want to transgress against the group. So knowing that if you didn't have any belongings when you enter into the group to bring with you that would fit into it, wouldn't be a problem because there would be materials for you in this communal group that you could also share in. Hmm. So Sarah, we we touched on the fact that um, all clothing within the source was considered to be communal. But at one point, there was some controversy over Father Yod's wife, um, who is now renamed Aham because all members of the source received n- new names um, and then were given the last name Aquarian as well. Um, and this controversy was the fact that some of the other female members were complaining that Aham was spending too much money on clothing because um, everything was supposed to be communal. Can you describe the style of dress worn by both the male and female members of the source and how did they obtain their clothing? So the clothing that was worn, so there's kind of two different categories of this in my kind of describing of it. So there's the clothes that they wear for the everyday, which are completely in line with contemporary styles. And uh, quite fashionable on, on their end, being, being them. <laughs> they're in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. Um, and there is, of course, uh, an awareness that this is a place where that physical stuff is really important, but they're going to, um, they said that they would go to kind of like the fabric stores that were selling to high-end designers and getting materials to make their clothes there, but also shopping at some mid-level nicer department stores. But it's when we talk about the ritual clothing, actually 
before we talk about ritual, I just have to acknowledge that Father Yod in his white suit is really quite an immaculate. Yeah. And by the visual. way, um, driving a white Rolls Royce. So let's just, just gather this visual picture of like a six foot five man with a flowing mane of white hair and beard dressed in a perfectly tailored white suit with a hat, a cane, and driving a white Rolls Royce with a bevy of drop-dead gorgeous women all around him. Obviously, this this drew quite some attention to the group. And I think it's an important part of an awareness because Father Yod wouldn't have been unaware of this. I think he was very conscious and used that to recruit recruit and to communicate as well um, because you also have to think about the timing of this and the Manson family is also in Los Angeles, similar time period. And the lasting effects of what the Manson family has on these other communities is really noteworthy because suddenly, you know, you have fear associated Mm -hmm. and cults become kind of an even bigger... The term becomes even more vilified. Absolutely. So with the source and the Love family and a number of other... Communities, you see an emphasis on making sure that you were clean, you know, that you didn't look unkempt, that you didn't come across as dangerous or threatening. Mm -hmm. So when you're in your public persona, it's important to be kind of in that awareness. And a number of the groups mention this in their texts as well primary and secondary sources referring right right and and where, like, you know, the the Manson family, we would, you know, obviously characterize as the far this dark end of the spectrum. I have to say that within the source, like my interpretation of it um, after reading and seeing the documentary, which we'll get to, I think we'll mention it here at the end, but um, it's it's all about love and light um, really for, for the most part of their history. There's definitely, um, there's still a lot of that patriarchal control yes. and leadership that's part of the challenge of like having a clean slate with everything. But I do feel like in terms of bad things happening on the scales in these communities, the source is quite reminiscent of Oneida for me. Mm-hmm. That's a little more like utopian exactly. viewpoint. I do think it's more of a utopia, utopian society than yeah. um, a cult by any means. So t- um, let's get back to what you were talking about ritual. Tell us about um, this ritual dress. Sure. So like I said, I think that Father Yod was kind of an interesting researcher in terms of spiritual beliefs, um, and followed his own focus. So as that would shift, then the community's ritual dressing would also shift. So when I mentioned that patriarchal structure, the women in the community still were responsible for sewing the clothing for themselves and for the men. They would make these homespun kind of homemade robes. Mm-hmm. and it's Tunics, really, long tunics. Absolutely. Very... I would say Moroccan style Mm -hmm. in origin. So the women would make the clothing and as the identities would shift, so there would be a period where the Knights Templar, for example, would be an interest. And so their ritual costumes would take on more of a Knights Templar inspired look and they would go to their primary sources or secondary sources to find those references. But then they would also take elements of Native American styles and bring that into their clothing, especially with jewelry. So it would shift. So that's why when I talk about this feeling like 
group lasts for a very long time because there's so many different visual incarnations. Mm -hmm. It's this ritual. Right. Which is actually, if you think about it, like directly in line with like postmodernism of the era, which frequently takes different styles and like mishmashes them together in like this layering of like almost irony. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, so in many ways, like, they were doing their own thing, but this ideology was much in keeping with, with visual culture of the time, too, as well. Sarah, you mentioned that the source was not a long-lived experiment. Um, it started first kind of taking shape in 1969, but following Father Yod's death in 1975, things kind of started falling apart. Can you tell us about his death in the aftermath? Um, well, like— well, it's kind of a heartbreaking one, um, but also beautiful in a way. Um, the documentary does do the story more justice than I'll do, so I'll give just a very brief that he passed away in a hang gliding accident in Hawaii. And the after effects is that without the strong leadership of Father Yod, then the community really just kind of starts to disband and we don't have the source family in that same iteration anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's an important point to make that it seems as if his death might not have been completely an accident because earlier in the day, he makes a couple references um, about I who am about to die um, salute you something about that in Latin or something to that effect. And in the words of member Isis Aquarian, um, she says in the documentary, she says, quote, all of these men, when they get to a certain point of power, they have such responsibility, they don't have the strength to carry it through, and it starts crumbling. And you know, Jim Jones gives everybody Kool-Aid. Which leads us to our next group, arguably best known for the matching ensembles in which they departed this world. We are, of course, talking about Heaven's Gate it was really interesting for me to learn um, that within Heaven's Gate, there was no specific mandate regarding clothing um, because there is so much interest in clothing in some of these other groups. Um, they practiced a communal closet, but they did um, dress in mainstream fashions. And leaders of the group would assign group members to go out and, and purchase mainstream clothing that everybody wore and could just pick out of the men's closet or the women's closet every day. But of course, most famously, the group agreed to see their beliefs through to fruition and commit suicide with the aim of ascending aboard a UFO that they believed to be approaching behind the hill Bach Comet. One of the other dictates of their system belief was to practice specific forms of physical discipline to prepare their bodies and their minds for this entry to the quote-unquote next level to, to distance themselves um, from their physical earthly bodies. And this included practicing celibacy. So Sarah, my question to you is, what role did the individual play within the group? Um, and how did this play out in their clothing? Well, I think like you mentioned, um, this whole practice of communal closets is really key here because with that kind of theory about communities and identity, when you have things that separate you from the collective, they pull you out of the belief system, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So when it's all shared, when it's all kind of uniform in appearance, then there is no separation and you publicly, again, pronounce your commitment to this. 
So the individual is not the importance. It's the commitment to the idea by the individual. Right. And, and in terms of Heavensgate's um, philosophy, I think erasing the individuality was actually one of the aims of preparing their physical bodies for entry to the next level. Um, so, you know, on the surface, it may seem that the fact that they're dressing in mainstream clothing, that, that, that dress was not important to them. But in many ways, it really, really was. Um, and we see that in what happened in March of 1997. Do you want to talk a little bit about what happened and, and describe the scene for us? So I can talk about the fashion primarily because that's the thing that really stands out in cultural memory mm -hmm. of this. There are so many photos and kind of memes and jokes about this, but essentially the group um, had developed a very intricate system of suicide and through barbiturates and vodka cocktail. So when they would pass, they, they, they committed suicide over a period of three days, um, and there were 39 of them in the house at that time. And different groups would go in different stages. Right, different waves. Um, so everyone was wearing the same clothing. The most important part for me, and I'll let you pick up on some of the fun tidbits about patches that you've uncovered in your research on this, um, is that the Nikes mm -hmm. are the thing that everybody talks about now. And... It's interesting when I do research, um, looking at what's on the internet and what people are saying today about this, it's sneaker blogs, right? It's the right. sneakerheads who are really committed to these because Nike retired the style, but these were just kind of like ordered in bulk. Mm -hmm. They're not fancy high-end sneakers. These are like mass-produced <laughs> materials. Yeah. So um, before passing away, each member of the group um, donned a matching black uniform, which were homemade. They were sewn in advance by the group. Um, they were wearing black decade edition Nikes with a white swoop. And you touched on this that I don't think there was any specific reference or reason why Nike was chosen. It just happens to be the fact that Doe, who was the leader of the group, was able to get them in bulk at a discount price. Um, and you touched upon the patches. Um, the, the group was also found um, wearing... Um, a patch that said away team. And this was their cheeky reference to Star Trek. <laughs> so even in this really dark moment, they're finding humor, you know, in their deaths. And they all did record um, away messages. Um, and they, and a lot of them say that, you know, people are going to think this is very extreme, but I'm actually joyful. I'm going to be joining the next level. Um, it, it doesn't seem like there was terror. There was, there was some sort of strength in their convictions and in their beliefs that they undertook this action. And, and it is a little, you have to find a little bit of humor in the fact that they were playing with the Star Trek reference. Um, they actually had ordered a separate set of patches before, um, and I think they had even been delivered, and then they came up with the idea <laughs> for the away team patch, and that's the one that they went with. Well, I think one factor in that kind of humorous light reference here is that I don't think that they thought that they were dying, right? No, they this didn't. is very much a thought of like, my life is just going to continue on in a different form. Right. They're, they were, as in, in the kind of like words that they use within the group, they're exiting their physical vessels. Right. So it's that same, you can 
find this in many other religious belief systems, right? Where you leave your physical body behind and you go into a spiritual higher level Mm -hmm. of existence. Yeah, absolutely. So I know that I promised at the beginning of the episode a tie-in from my own life with one of these groups. And some of you who listen to a lot of podcasts, a different podcast, may have heard a podcast which details the history of Heaven's Gate, which is called Heaven's Gate. And it's hosted by Glenn Washington. And Glenn was specifically hired to host that show because he had grown up in a cult. Um, And it just happens to be that he and I grew up in the exact same one. Um, We did not know each other at the time, although we are about the exact same age. We were actually raised in different sects of the Worldwide Church of God. And much like Heaven's Gate, the teachings of my group were based in the Bible chapter of Revelations, which predicts a pending apocalypse of war and mass destruction, and Armageddon, as as we would say, um, which would precede the second coming of Christ. And from my earliest memory, you know, the culture within our group was really to instill dread of this event, um, which we were assured was imminent at any moment. Like, it could happen, like, literally two seconds from now. Um, And the only way that we were going to survive this end of the world was by belonging to this group. Um, You know, we were taught that all other religions were false and that our leader spoke directly to God and was his only ambassador on earth. You know, but again, like Heaven's Gate, our our group didn't, you know, practice any particular rules about the types of clothing that were worn. You know, we wore mainstream clothing um, just as it seems A lot of some of the most extreme examples of fringe religions like Heaven's Gate and also the more than 900 members of Jonestown who committed mass suicide in Ghana in 1978, they didn't have any distinctive styles or or dictates on dress either. Correct. And this is where the hard facts of this research choice that I'm in the midst of is that When I start to look into groups like the Mansons and Jim Jones and the People's Church, which is ultimately what happens with Jonestown, those two particular groups don't have that uniformity of dress. And those two groups also happen to be the most challenging for me personally to research and study and immerse myself in that account of their horrific events. And there's this idea that I'm trying to work out, which is whether or not a lack of unified appearance in conformity and dress really speaks more strongly to the fact that this group is so removed from society and culture that they have no need to communicate to anyone else. They are so committed to that leadership and that idea and belief system that it doesn't matter. And so that's sort of the moment when you really should be even more concerned. Yeah, so they don't have to outwardly define themselves to the rest of the world as a member of this group because it has been so internalized. Right. So that that the dress doesn't matter. Absolutely. And that's where sometimes I think where really insidious things happen. Right. When you aren't part of society, you aren't held to those rules. Um, I will say one interesting thing about my group is that um, many of us young children were so fearful or, 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 you know, taught to be so fearful of this Armageddon that some of my friends actually wore their shoes to bed, while others of us kept our shoes right next to the bed in case that we had to, quote unquote, flee to the place of safety. This is a big catchphrase within my group. Um, you know, and the place of safety was a place that God had chosen for only 
members of our group, you know, the rest of the world uh, was going to have to endure the apocalypse um, because anyone else who was a non-believer in the teachings of the worldwide Church of God was basically going to have to go through um, the end of the world, and it was only us. So, Sarah, I don't know if you have any questions for me um, about <laughs> my experiences, because I will answer any of them. And um, dress listeners, if you guys have questions too, I'm an open book about this. I would be happy to speak to you about it too. If you would like to send us questions, maybe Cassidy and I will do this as a second episode for um, our Thursday episode of Fashion History Mystery. I'm happy to answer your questions about that. So April, I do have some questions because one of the things that I've noticed, especially in discussions of sex and with a T, um, (laughs) (laughs) S-E-C-T-S, is that within the fundamentalist Christians, there is, especially in former members, a lot of discussion about nail polish Mm. and makeup and even kind of very casual references to the fact that when they left, then suddenly nail polish would be worn or makeup. So did you have any similar experiences? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, we were not allowed to wear makeup at all. Um, People would actually be quote-unquote, disfellowshipped from the group for wearing makeup. And there was a lot of, like, kind of just, like, spying on each other and trying to, like, catch each other doing something that you weren't supposed to be doing. I remember very vivid discussions of um, my father wanting to kick a wom- one woman out because somebody said that they saw her during the week wearing makeup. Um, so we were not allowed to wear makeup. And nail polish was okay, though. Um, But interestingly enough, this all changed about the time that I turned 13 because Herbert W. Armstrong, who is the leader of our group, died. Um, He was in his 90s. And the man who um, took over in his place basically started changing some of the doctrines. And at that point, um, we like pretty much overnight, we went from kicking people out of the group or calling them Jezebel or whores for wearing makeup to being able to wear makeup overnight. And almost every single woman did. It, I mean, it was just like, and that was one of the first, uh, not the first inklings, but but that was one of the first times I was like, wow, this is some deep hypocrisy happening here. You know, it was just like, just because they said yes, then everybody rushed out to the mall and bought makeup. Well, it's almost like giving permission or setting a new rule of if wearing makeup in the past was forbidden and it's no longer forbidden, then that must mean it's okay and you should do it, right? Right, yeah. So why do you think this emphasis was on makeup? Because we see kind of when we look back in history of fashion, especially makeup has this um, tarted reputation. Yeah, no, um, for us it was actually like a biblical reference because they talk about the painted woman, the painted Jezebel, right? So in many ways, uh, makeup was viewed as being enticing in terms of a sexual nature. Um, so, so I think that for us, like, you know, besides just a general uh, mandate of modesty, dress modestly, not like to the extreme, but, you know, n- no sexiness, essentially. Which is interesting because, again, it comes back to sex and power and control of the body. And particularly over women's bodies. Absolutely. because. You're the temptation. Right. Yep. 
So if anybody wants to learn more about um, our group, Glenn actually goes into some detail in an entire episode of the Heaven's Gate podcast. So if you'd like to hear more about his experiences, you can turn into that. Sarah, we dealt with some pretty heavy subject matter today, my friend. (laughs) So I think we should maybe sign off as our time is up. But thank you so much for joining us on Dress and enlightening us about where systems of belief and clothing sometimes intersect. Thank you, April, and you, Cassidy, too, for having me on the show. It's such a highlight of my research to share this with this audience. And if anybody has any additional thoughts or sources or communities that you feel like are really important, especially when it comes to fashion, please reach out to the dress team. And And I will forward them to Sarah. (laughs) Thanks so much. Okay. Thank you. Sarah, thank you for joining us today and sharing this incredibly unique research. It really was a revelation. It's fascinating. And I have to say to the best of my knowledge, I don't know of any prior research by fashion historians into this topic. And I can't wait to hear more as you continue on this path of discovery. Oh, I mean, there is so much more to be said here about the relationship between clothing and systems of control. I'm sure that many of our listeners are wondering why we did not touch on the Rajanishis, which which is, of course, (laughs) the sect featured in the very popular Netflix series, Wild Wild Country. And and the reason that we didn't before you text us or or direct message us or email us, (laughs) we did that intentionally um, because the TV show really did document their story in great detail. And instead, we wanted to shine a light on just a few of the many other new religious movements in the history of the United States. Yeah, and if you have not seen that documentary, highly, highly recommend it. Although my husband and I had to kind of space watching it because it freaked us out so much. (laughs) It's a lot to process, but it's so cool. And the clothing they wear is incredible too. So check that out. And apparently the legacy of some of these religious movements, for better or worse, live on in the fashion trends of today. And that does it for us today, dress listeners. Perhaps you'll consider where your system of beliefs and your clothing intersect next time you get dressed. Don't forget, dress now comes to you twice a week, so you can catch us on Thursday for our fashion history mystery mini-sode, where we answer your questions about fashion history. If you would like to write to us with a question, you can do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. For images accompanying each week's episode, be sure and follow us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle, and you can follow us on Facebook at dress podcast without the underscore. And you can stream our episodes from our website, www.dresspodcast.com, where we also post recommended readings for each episode. Want some fashion history swag? Check out our merch store at tpublic.com forward slash dressed. That's t-e-e-public.com forward slash dressed. And last but not least, thank you to our producers, Holly Fry, Casey Pegram, and everyone else over at iHeartMedia that makes the show happen each week. Catch you Thursday. Bye.